Hello, and welcome to the Dr. Rebecca Baxt podcast. I'm Dr. Rebecca Baxt, board-certified dermatologist, and I'm here to discuss with you all issues relating to the skin that you're in. In this podcast, we will tackle the topic of the day quickly to get you the take-home points that you need. After listening to an episode, you should be educated about the topic and able to fix the issue yourself or well-prepared to ask the right questions at your next dermatology appointment. Let's get started. Today, we're going to talk about hair loss. This is a hair loss overview. Hair loss is an extremely complicated topic. It can have many different causes, and sometimes patients have more than one cause. The best way to start if you're having trouble with hair loss is to get a consultation with a great board-certified dermatologist who is an expert in hair issues. Dermatologists are all trained in the diseases of the skin, hair, and nails, so most board-certified dermatologists should be able to handle it. But it's tough to handle on your own. It's best to seek medical advice. So when I see a hair loss patient for consultation, which is almost every single day in my office since it's a very common problem, I want to take a really good history, and I want to ask them a lot of questions that get answers to these questions. I start with, when did the hair loss start? Is this a new problem? Is this a chronic problem? Is it the last couple of months? Is it the last few years? Was the onset sudden or gradual? Did you all of a sudden lose a massive amount of hair? Or was it a gradual hair loss over time? Then I want to know, is it all over the body? Most patients come in with complaints of the scalp, but sometimes there can be other areas, the beard area, eyelashes, eyebrows, body. And in the scalp, are there particular areas? Is it in the front? Is it in the sides? Is it in the crown? Is it all over the scalp? Are there little patches and bald spots in specific areas? Then I also like to know, did anybody start a new medication or stop a medication, particularly hormonal medications such as birth control pills, but other medications too? So I ask that question. I also need to know the answer to, did this start after a severe episode of a viral illness or after the birth of a baby or after hospitalization or a surgery? I also like to know how much hair is falling out. Is it all over the bathroom floor? Is there a ton in the drain of the shower? Or is it just that they've noticed that their scalp is thinning? In addition with hair loss, it is important to make sure that there is nothing systemic that is causing it. When people are anemic or have thyroid problems or a hormonal imbalance, that can be causing the hair loss. So At the end of the history and physical, once we've determined what we think the cause is, if I feel that blood work is necessary, I will send patients for that. So once I have the answers to all these questions, I then go in and do a physical examination of the affected areas, which is typically the scalp. So when I look at the scalp, I'm looking for, are there any bald spots? Are there patches that are thinner than other patches? Are there flakes and redness? Is there any scarring? Is there any discoloration? And I will usually do a hair pull test, which is where you just sort of take a gentle pull on a few hairs together and see if any come out. If you have just showered, it is likely that the hair pull test will be negative. If you haven't showered and washed your hair in a long time, sometimes that can skew the results, but it's important for us to do to see if there's active loss. 
I also like to ask about family history, although I find this much less important than finding out about the actual history for the patient and the physical exam. So sometimes hair loss does run in families, um, and that can be helpful, but it's not determinative. So now that I have the information as to the history and the physical, now I want to go into what are the common causes of hair loss that I see in my office basically pretty much every week, if not every day. I'd like to talk about the common causes, and I think we will start with the one that is very common and very scary when it happens called telogen effluvium, and that is a sudden hair loss. That is when you get hair loss and the hairs are coming out in clumps and they're all over the bathroom floor and they're all clogging up the shower drain. It tends to be a few months after a stressful event, such as the birth of a baby, a viral illness such as COVID, a hospitalization or surgery or severe stressor. So it usually starts a few months later and it's massive sudden hair loss. The good news about that kind of hair loss is that it does stop and it does grow back, but depending on the length of your hair, it can take a long time. There's not a ton to do about it, but it's important to know if that is the cause because good news, that hair grows back. Another very common cause of hair loss is alopecia areata. Alopecia areata is an autoimmune disease and it causes typically patches of hair loss, little circles of hair loss or patches of different shapes that go bald in the scalp. Sometimes it can affect the body as well, and it's common in the eyelashes, eyebrows, beard area. This condition is also usually a fairly sudden onset, and people notice bald spots and panic. But it's very common, and it's pretty treatable. Oftentimes, it's common in children, and it can even go away on its own. But we tend to treat it because, again, it can be a very stressful event for patients. The most common treatment for it is just steroid injections, and we just inject a low-dose steroid that reduces the inflammation and allows the hair to grow back. Um, it does require repeated injections, but that usually works pretty well for mild cases. For more severe cases, there are a lot of new FDA-approved treatments for those. One other type of hair loss that we see, not that commonly, but we do see it, is called traction alopecia. And it's very common for people who have pulled their hair back very tightly for many years. And then the hair follicles just start to die off due to the chronic trauma of being pulled so tightly. And it's a difficult condition to treat if it's caught late, but I have seen patients who have an onset of this if they just loosen up their hair and don't tie it back so tight, whether it's in chronic ponytails or tight braids. I've seen it improve and it is somewhat treatable. The best way to treat traction alopecia is to prevent it by making sure that if you do pull your hair tightly, that you give it a break. Maybe it's pulled tight during the evening and you give it a break during the day, or you have it in tight braids, but you don't do that on a chronic basis every single month or two. So the best way really is prevention. I'd also like to talk about scarring alopecia. Scarring alopecia is less common, but I do see it all the time. And that can be caused by many different conditions. It can be caused by lupus in the skin of the scalp. It can be caused by a condition called lichen planopolaris or a variant of that called frontal fibrosing alopecia. 
It also can be caused by something called CCCA, which is central centrifugal cicatricial alopecia. That's a tongue twister. And that tends to happen on the top of the scalp, that one. These conditions, sometimes they're very classic and it's easy to determine what they are, but sometimes they do require a scalp biopsy, which is a minor procedure. We put in a little stitch and take a teeny tiny piece of the scalp to send to the lab to find out what is the exact cause. And these are more complicated conditions, but they are treatable with a variety of things such as oral antibiotics, oral Plaquenil, which is hydroxychloroquine, steroid injections, and other treatments. Then sometimes people will have infections, a folliculitis or a bacterial infection, a fungal infection, and these can cause hair loss. And those are very important to determine the cause so that that is fairly easily treated with an oral antibiotic or an antifungal. There is one type of folliculitis called folliculitis decalvans that is a severe folliculitis that can be a little bit more difficult to treat. And some patients will get some scarring alopecia from that, but that is a more uncommon condition. Lastly, I'd like to go over androgenetic alopecia. This is the most common cause of hair loss that I see in my office. I definitely see this every day. And this is common in men and women, although it presents slightly differently on physical exam between men and women. For men, they tend to start receding. So the hairline starts moving backwards, particularly at the temporal region. And they start to get thinning in the crown. And eventually those two things meet and they can go bald on the entire top of the head and eventually their entire scalp. Women tend to just get thin on the top of their scalp. They might recede a little bit, but that's not typical. It typically is just the thinning of the hair and easier to see the scalp. And it tends to be on the top of the scalp and not the back and the bottom. Again, it looks different in men and women. And the treatments are sometimes similar, and then they diverge because men and women are different. So first, I'd like to talk about the treatments that are the same. First-line therapy for androgenetic alopecia tends to be topical Rogaine. So it is available over-the-counter. It's in 2% and 5%. I usually skip over the 2% and go straight to the 5%. It comes in a foam and a liquid. That is personal preference. Usually the foam is a little bit easier to apply, but if someone has a lot of hair still, sometimes the foam is hard to get in and the liquid might work better. People often don't like the way it feels in their scalp. For men, it's recommended at twice a day. For women, it can be once a day. Um, Sometimes we do recommend it twice a day for women anyway, and it's hard to tolerate because it can be irritating. And it's a tough treatment, but it does help. On occasion, it can make someone a little bit worse before it makes them better. I usually recommend that everybody buy the men's Rogaine. They can buy generic. There's usually an upcharge for pink packaging. So men and women can just buy the men's 5% foam or liquid, generic or brand name. After topical Rogaine, People will sometimes use a laser cap or a laser comb or a laser band. It's called LLLT, low-level laser therapy. This technology has shown some minor improvement in terms of stimulating hair growth. And I do feel that it is fairly harmless. So if you have the money to invest in a good quality laser cap, laser comb, or laser band, then I suggest that people do it because, again, it doesn't really cause any harm and it could cause a little bit of improvement. 
For people with a lot of hair, I don't feel that the caps work well because I'm concerned that the light won't penetrate. Um, and those people would be better served with a laser comb or a laser band. But the comb, you have to actively do yourself a certain number of minutes, a couple times a week. I think it's usually around 15 or 20 minutes. And so it's hard to actually do it. And so there's a middle product called the laser band, which sometimes works well, which you can just sort of leave on your head and do other things while it's working. So while low-level laser therapy does not give a big improvement, it does show some improvement. And if we add that to the Rogaine, sometimes people are satisfied with those results. But oftentimes that is not enough. So then we can move to other levels of treatment. Again, I am talking about things that are good for both men and women to start, and then we will diverge later. So for men and women, they are both candidates for platelet-rich plasma therapy, or PRP. PRP is technically experimental for hair procedures. It is not actually FDA-approved for hair procedures, but it does help stimulate hair growth in most patients. I would give it about a 50 to 75% effectiveness. That doesn't mean that your hair grows back to the way that it was before, but in terms of patients satisfied with it in my practice, and I think generally speaking, around half to three quarters feel that it helps them. It's a bit subjective. So it's a little bit expensive. It's not covered by insurance. It's not FDA approved, and it does hurt a little bit. Um, but that said, I also feel this is fairly harmless, especially when done in good hands. We basically take a large tube of blood out of the arm, and we spin it down in a centrifuge, and then we take out the red cells and the white cells, and we are left with the plasma. The plasma has a lot of platelets in it. We resuspend the platelets in the plasma after it's been concentrated a little bit, and then we take that platelet-rich plasma and inject it back into the patient's scalp. The platelets and the platelet-rich plasma have a lot of growth factors in them, so that is what is thought to be the agent that helps with stimulating hair growth. But as I said, it's really considered experimental. But I do do it in my office, and many people perform PRP injections for hair loss, and it is helpful for a lot of patients. In addition, both men and women are candidates for hair transplantation surgery. This is not something that I do, but I do recommend that patients get consultations about it if they're interested. And that is when you take hair from typically the back of the scalp where the hairs are growing thicker and move those hairs to the front or the top or wherever it is that you want to fill in. It typically requires more than one procedure. It's definitely expensive. It is a permanent solution, but you also want to make sure that you stop the process that is causing the hair loss because if, for example, your hairline continues to recede backward, then eventually you end up with hair growing fine in the front and no hair behind it. So you need to go to somebody who's really good at hair transplantation to help make a long-term plan for transplantation and when is the best time to do it. There are different ways. Typically now it's done robotically and with individual follicular unit transplants and fewer and fewer people are having a whole strip of hair cut out of the back of their scalp, which leaves a big scar. So there is scarring from it, but it's usually pretty minimal um, and it is a, a very good treatment for the right patient. Now I'd like to diverge into separately men and women. So for men, we can often put them on Propecia or Finasteride. It has been FDA-approved 
to treat hair loss for a long time. Finasteride is also called Proscar at five milligrams, and the finasteride Propecia is at one milligram. Sometimes the one milligram is not enough, and we can go up to a slightly higher dose. I do usually require one PSA or a prostate-specific antigen on file. I just like to do one blood test because the medication can decrease the PSA, and I just like to have a baseline. It's a little bit old-fashioned, but there are doctors who still do that. And this can help. It does have a lot of black box warnings and FDA warnings on it. I have found it's usually very well tolerated for men. I have not found it helpful for women, although some people will give it to women. But the black box warnings have to do with sexual dysfunction and gynecomastia, which is man boobs, and apparently depression and suicide. So I do counsel my patients on that. And if they feel comfortable, then we can give it. And if they're not comfortable, then we don't do that pill. So that is finasteride or Propecia. We can also give dutasteride, which is another variant of that. And we can also give oral Rogaine. Oral Rogaine can be very helpful. It is a blood pressure medication. It is the reason that Rogaine was discovered that it worked topically because they were using minoxidil, which is the generic term for Rogaine, orally for blood pressure and noticed that people grew their hair. So we can do oral Rogaine. It is a blood pressure medication. I just have to make sure that you know patients don't tend towards low blood pressure because it can make you dizzy. And if they have high blood pressure, I like to coordinate that with their cardiologist or primary care doctor because they can just take oral Rogaine if that's comfortable for the other doctor and kill two birds with one stone. For women, the pills are slightly different in my opinion. I don't tend to use finasteride or dutasteride, although some doctors do. I will give women oral Rogaine, but they have to understand that sometimes it can stimulate hair growth on the whole body and be willing to deal with that. It is uncommon, but it absolutely can happen. The same rules apply in terms of the blood pressure. I like to make sure they either aren't prone to low blood pressure, which is a bit more common in women, and if they have high blood pressure, maybe to coordinate with whoever is giving them their high blood pressure medication, maybe they can switch over. Women, depending on their age, are also candidates for spironolactone, which is another blood pressure medication, which is used off-label for hair loss in women, and I will sometimes give that, sometimes in coordination with an endocrinologist or their primary care doctor or their gynecologist. So it depends on the patient, but spironolactone can be helpful for hair loss in women. Spironolactone does have some side effects. Again, it can cause lightheadedness, it can cause breast tenderness and irregular bleeding, It causes the body to hold on to potassium, so I recommend a regular diet that's not too high in potassium. You have to not overeat potassium-rich foods. The five most common potassium-rich foods in the American diet are kale, spinach, bananas, coconut water, and avocado. So I counsel my patients on that, and sometimes spironolactone can really help. So when I am starting a treatment protocol, I try to go from the least toxic and least expensive and then work our way up. I usually try to give things about a six-month trial before we add something else. But sometimes someone has a severe problem and we have to do everything all at once, and that is okay with me as long as the patient understands that when they're better, we're not going to really know what one of the four things really made the biggest difference, and so now they have to keep doing all of the things that we chose. 
So regarding diet and oral supplements, it is my professional opinion that diet and oral supplements don't really do much in the way of treatment of hair loss. But if patients want to do that, I'm fine with them taking biotin, Viviscal, Nutrafol, whatever it is that they want to take, I'm okay with that. I just am not of the opinion that it does a heck of a lot. I also like to explain to patients that with hair loss, if everything that we do improves it a little bit and we do two or three or four different things, then all of a sudden we've got some real significant improvement. So I usually try to get patients on more than one modality for treatment. But hair growth is slow. It takes a number of months to really see it. The hair grows about a quarter to a half of an inch a month. So it's going to be a while until you notice improvement in hair thinning. So in summary, hair loss is very complicated. It affects children, men, women, really all ages. Sometimes there's a familial component. Sometimes there isn't. It really is best diagnosed with a board-certified dermatologist to try to help tease out what is the etiology. And sometimes there's more than one. I see lots of patients who have telogen effluvium and androgenetic alopecia. It's a very common combination. I have seen people who have frontal fibrosing alopecia and androgenetic alopecia. So people can sometimes have alopecia areata and something else. So really it has to be diagnosed With a board-certified dermatologist, sometimes it requires blood work, sometimes it requires a scalp biopsy, but there are so many treatments for hair loss, and there's a lot of particularly new treatments for the autoimmune types of hair loss, like alopecia areata, when it's severe, and I just hope that people don't panic when you have hair loss. Just get yourself to a board-certified dermatologist to get a diagnosis and treatment. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Dr. Rebecca Bax podcast. I'm Dr. Rebecca Bax, board-certified dermatologist. I hope this episode was informative and that you enjoyed listening. If you found this podcast useful, please give us a five-star rating wherever you get your podcasts. It helps others find us so we can help them too. Just a caveat to remember, this is not medical advice, and please see your dermatologist or doctor for questions pertaining to your specific situation. I look forward to talking with you again in the next episode.